Hello and welcome to the We Are Habs podcast, the show that lifts the lid on some of the old girls and boys who, after leaving haberdashers, have made their mark on the world. I'm Elliot Gotkin, Meadows 87-94. I'm a journalist, master of ceremonies and host of the FN Tech podcast. My guest today is a British baritone singer and composer and former Royal Philharmonic Society Singer of the Year. He's performed all over the world, ratcheting up numerous recordings in the process, including Vaughan Williams at Barclay and Britain Operas for Chandos, and an extensive repertoire of English songs with pianist Ian Burnside for Axios. In 2017, he was awarded an OBE for services to music. Roderick Williams, welcome to the We Are Habs podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, great to see you. Um, where are you now and, and how are things uh, where you are? Um, I'm in Warwickshire. I'm in my kitchen at, in Warwickshire. And you can see the garden just beyond me there. Um, uh, so it's a little village not far from Stratford-upon-Avon, right in the middle of, of Britain. I th- thought it was a useful idea uh, being a freelance singer to be right in the middle of a country so I can get everywhere with equal hassle. And things are great here. Thank you, for, thank you very much. Um, uh, I've been at home for the last few days over this weekend because the jobs I would have been doing um, have been cancelled owing to COVID regulations. Hopefully the last gasp of COVID cancellations. I'm, I'm optimistic now that as we head into spring, that jobs in my diary um, will stay in my diary. Um, so I'm very optimistic, but things are well here. Thank you. Well, I, I, I feel and share your pain, although usually here it's not that things are not allowed to happen. It's just the people you were supposed to be, are supposed to be speaking with or interviewing have come down with, with COVID. Yeah. Um, but hopefully we're getting through that uh, as well. Uh, and of course, you know, when we're speaking uh, on, on a video platform, you know, Zoom and other Platforms have obviously been a lifeline for many workers throughout the pandemic. Um, one imagines, though, that it doesn't quite cut the mustard for, for opera singing. Uh, how did the pandemic affect you, aside from job cancellations? Uh, were you able to adapt in, in some capacity? Well, it's interesting. The, the, the particular, the first one, the summer of 2020, um, uh, I was under the impression, once things cancelled, that there, there was going to be silence for however long it took, um, weeks, and then it turned into months and then years. Um, and what really surprised me was that over various platforms like Zoom and others, uh, is that choral singing of a sort did manage to continue. It's one thing for me as a freelance musician um, to uh, just make music of my own here in my house, sometimes uh, accompanying myself through sort of various um, sort of talkback methods and and what have you. So I was able to do something and I made a few fun, uh, silly family videos that we posted mostly for our own consumption and a little bit um, for general consumption online. But I was worried that choral singing and orchestral playing in this country was just going to clam up because you can't do that in real time over Zoom. There are literally one or two um, connections, programs that can cope with the digital delay. But if you or any of your of your viewers have ever tried to sing "Happy Birthday" on mass down Zoom, you'll you'll know that it falls apart within um, about five seconds, as everybody starts waiting for everybody else, and the delay just hampers everything. I thought that was going to be the end of it, and actually, what was extraordinary—I mean, really quite moving—was was that I was um, invited onto uh, various choral um, society platforms to join them in their rehearsals during those uh, uh, lockdown periods. Um, and I was one of a sea of faces on these platforms and you know, pages of people joining in. They were not just meeting, 
because choral singing is is clearly a social thing for them. They weren't just meeting; they were working on on music, uh, maybe going over something with their conductor who was making the uh, the noise, and they were all muted and singing along um, in their living rooms or wherever. Uh, and I thought that was astonishing that they had found a way to continue. It was utterly brilliant. And as I say, quite moving. I got quite choked up once or twice visiting these choirs. It was amazing that I was able to visit. That, that's the thing about this situation forced on us. Um, rather than having to travel to Scrapton-upon-Sea Choral Society or whatever, um, uh, I was able to do that again from my kitchen and and really make a connection with people. So that was valuable. Not at all as valuable as being able to sing together in reality, but at least it had um, some benefits. And you get a sense that things uh, are getting back to normal now. Are people still, you know, running scared because of the uh, Omicron uh, variant? I appreciate that, you know, there's been restrictions in terms of, of the UK and, and other countries. But you get a sense that looking beyond that, that, uh, that things are, your diary is starting to fill up or you're just waiting for, for the uh, spigots to open? <laughs> no, certainly I am getting a sense that things are moving forward. For me, it's, it's conversations with promoters that I find interesting. Um, um, again, a year ago or so, uh, promoters were planning um, seasons and uh, uh, coming up with all sorts of wonderful uh, uh, ways around the restrictions in a number of people on stage, numbers of, uh, of people allowed in the audience. They were being hugely inventive in finding ways around this, but they were also being frustrated with changing situations and just having to tear everything up. I remember in the autumn of 2020 going to visit uh, uh, the Royal Liverpool Philharmonic and um, they were sort of a little bit giddy um, with having torn up their autumn season for the fourth time in a week. Um, so, so it was out of control. Because these promoters, they have to plan something. They can't just sit and wait because by the time things do open up, if they haven't planned something, there's nothing, there's nothing there. So they're making all these plans, and I'm getting the sense that in the spring of 2022, the plans they make, they sense, are more likely to come to fruition than not. They're, as you mentioned yourself about um, uh, meeting people to, to, uh, in, in this, this sort of scenario, um, if you make a plan for some international soloist to come and perform a concerto or a recital in your venue, and they get stuck at an airport of your choice because they haven't got the right paperwork or something, then, then the whole thing falls to the ground. Uh, now we're all better at traveling. We all know what's involved. We've, we're better at filling in the forms. The people who've created the forms are getting better at creating forms that can be filled in. And so altogether, we're all just getting used to it. It's taken us this amount of time. And, and I just think that things that we put into our diaries are a little bit more solid now. Um, I, I used to I, I used to preface everything I said. You know, someone might ask, you know, oh, what are you doing in the next month? I say, well, I'm supposed to be going to, you know, Berlin or you know, Glasgow or whatever. Um, I don't know if I will, but that's where I'm supposed to be on paper. And now I don't have to say that so much. Now I can be more definite. <laughs> and uh, did you have you managed to avoid actually uh, catching? Um, uh, COVID-19? Yes, I think so. Um, I don't know if I was one of those people in the early days that, who caught it and wasn't tested, so we'll never know. Um, in that spring of, I mean, really early March or something like that, when my um, three grown-up children managed to get home and we all uh, uh, 
uh, endured lockdown number one as a family of five. In that early period, there was a there was a, a week, and just a few days, when my wife noticed I wasn't smiling at much as much as normal. She said, "Roddy, you've lost your mojo." She said, "And I'm, who knows? Maybe I just lost my mojo. <laughs> Maybe I caught COVID." Um, but it was so the, the symptoms were so slight that it wasn't even birth, worth uh, um, mentioning. But all I can say is. I've been going around and continuing to work and continuing to teach and continuing my life without wearing a hazmat suit. I've been in all sorts of places where, in cities where, and countries where COVID is prevalent. And I can't claim that my hand washing and sterilizing regime is any better than anybody else's. But as of now, I'm touching wood as I say this, as of now, I haven't caught it. So, um, you know, so far so good. Yeah, I was going to say because having recently recovered, from it, having recently recovered from it myself, and knowing that it affected my voice. In fact, it's still not. Uh, I'm not quite as husky as this normally. Um, so, uh, so I, I was just uh, from the perspective that well, Manhattan's you need to be even more careful because your voice is is obviously your your number one asset when yeah. it comes to your to your work. Um, I, I should also say that that um, in the course of this podcast, we've had. Uh, we had Penny Endersby on. She's the CEO of the Met Office. Um, and we also had Vanessa Feltz on and her family. And um, the thing that they had in common, aside from going to Habs Girls, was that they, they ended up singing uh, on the podcast uh, for us. I, I was wondering if perhaps, as uh, I know that you've said it doesn't, you know, so, since you're just doing it solo and not trying to form a chorus or sing in unison with others, perhaps you can uh, share whatever you're working on right now or what the next thing that you're about to perform for us, a little uh, snippet uh maybe. A little snippet. Let me just remind myself what the next thing is. Oh, yeah, I'm due to be singing the Bach Mass in B minor. Um, and again, I'm, I'm just inches away from saying if I get there. But I, I think I've got all the travel documents in place now. The flight is booked. So I think it, it is very likely I'm going to get there. Just out of interest, before I offer anything up to the microphone, what did they sing? Uh, gosh, uh, so... Um... Penny Endersby did something from the, uh, she's she like, uh, she's in charge of like the Med Office Choir, I think it was, and wow. something else. Vanessa Fels ended up doing the, the kind of school hymn. And then we kind of, because there were some male members of her family on the call who were ex-Habs boys, we also, they also, I think, segged into um, uh, To Be a Pilgrim, which uh. I'm sure you, uh, which you're welcome to uh, share with us and, and all the Habs, uh, current and ex-Habs boys uh, listening. <laughs> Yes, school song. The school song. Was there a school song? Did Habs have a school song? I, I wasn't think it aware was to of be it. A pilgrim. Just yeah, it was, yes. It was to be a pilgrim, and I was Jerusalem. Those were the two I remember. Yes, he who would valiant be, because uh, I sang Pilgrim's Progress. Well, yeah. it was Pilgrim's Progress in oh, it must be two thousand and seven or so at Sattler's Wells. Um, so uh, it's not so much the hymn, but the school opera, as it were. But um, uh, uh, um, it, 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 give me a minute because I'm going to have to sort of uh, process in the back of my mind so, something that I could sing to you that won't be too long because I could give you a, a five minute sort of Schubert song or something like that. But that may not be quite what you're after. So just give me a minute to process that and I'll think of something that's um, more appropriate to the situation. Okay, and I'll carry on with uh, the next question. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, so uh, as we will obviously see in just a moment you are a baritone uh, which you know despite my ignorance i think even i know puts you at the deeper voiced end of the scale um what what what's the, can you 
for those who aren't overly familiar with uh, the various um, uh, the levels, can you perhaps uh, share with us what, how a baritone differs from a, a bass and a tenor and, and, and the other ones? Yes, I can do that with, with great ease. So um, uh, uh, if, you, if you break things down into male and female voices and skirt around the issue of, of anything that doesn't fit into that binary um, uh, 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 categorization, you, you just work with male and female voices. A female voices, you have soprano at the top, particularly the high sopranos, the, 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 gla the wine glass shatterers. So you have sopranos at the top. You have mezzo-sopranos, literally half sopranos, so people who can't quite break glasses in, in the middle. And then you have altos, often known as contraltos, at, at the bottom. Those are the, that's that wonderful fruity sound of someone that Madame Castafiore from Tintin, um, but someone who's, who's got, you know, uh, how should we call it, a great deal of support. And then male voices tend to have the same sort of category, high, middle, and low. So the tenors, where all the money is, bless them, um, they have the high voices, and they are they're once in a generation. You know, you get wonderful high tenor voices. Pavarotti comes to mind, Domingo, Yossi uh, Bjorling, these great tenor voices, high ringing sounds to do all the Ness and Dorma stuff. And then you get the basses right at the other end who've got the low. We're talking about Russian basses, tend to be very tall, often bearded, um, and and when they sing, it's like a tube train run, running underneath your chair, you know. And then in the middle is the rest of us, baritones. And, and I'm sorry to sell my particular um, voice part short, but it's kind of what most men are. Um, we're, in the, we're neither high enough to be a tenor nor low enough to be a true bass. So we skirt along in the middle, um, uh, which makes us a little bit less attractive um, for, to the opera houses. Um, hence, maybe our fees are not quite so astronomical. Not, it's all to do about money, of course, not all of it. Uh, why is that? Is it just due to the range of, 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 that you can hit in the, in the, in the opera songs? Um, is, that, is that just the reason why? Yeah, it's, it's, it's human beings. Um, human beings, generally speaking, you, you get a wide range of human beings. And um, most of us are in the middle. And then the outer reaches, the high tenors or the low basses, are the extremes and the one-offs um, and, uh, uh, and something unusual. You can often hear in someone's speaking voice um, whether they might have a high singing voice. It doesn't always correlate, actually. But, uh, but um, you know, when you have someone who sort of spends all their time when, as, a, as a man speaking right up here, or you have a sort of Lee Marvin or, you know, Harrison Ford type who sort of, speaks all the way down here uh, you can you can sort of gauge where their singing voice might be roughly speaking so you know that's that's the that's the rough beginner's guide to how to cast an opera okay uh, did you think we were um i was my next question was about what you were working on now but I, i'm not sure if that's uh, related to the the uh, snippets you were going to Share yeah, I, 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 I think it. I think it might be a bit weird for me to sing a little snippet of what I'm working on now, and I'll tell you why this is. Because, because what I what is interesting to me as a singer is that um, if I introduce myself like at a party, do you remember parties when we were all allowed to gather together? And I won't go into that now. Um, if if uh, the whole idea. Of, yeah, yeah, ex ex exactly. So we call them super spreading events now. But, uh, uh, when I introduce myself to someone and I mention I'm a singer, they might uh, react by saying, oh, well, sing me something. And um, 
most other professions don't get this in the same way. Um, for example, gynecologists very rarely get that. But um, uh, it, generally speaking, um, singers aren't... Say again, sorry? Not on this podcast. Anyway. Not, no, not here. No, it's good, clean fun here. But uh, singers, I've found, classical singers in particular, not, not other fields, but classical singers are the least likely people to, to be able to sing something at the drop of a hat. And you find this particularly, of all places, in Ireland. If you're in, if you're in Ireland, you go to the pub and you're carrying any sort of musical instrument, there's a kind of um, expectation that you will play something. You know, you, you will jam with the band. And this makes classical musicians very um, nervous because we're not used to improvising. So for me, I, I spend my life um, singing and making music, particularly with colleagues, I very rarely do that on my own. So the idea of just launching into something a cappella here, unaccompanied, um, suddenly ups the ante. And I have to think, oh, what, what, what should I sing? Have I warmed up? Um, you know, um, it, it's the, it, it, like for me, the kiss of death is karaoke. I just, that, that, that terrifies me as a concept. Because everyone else, uh, particularly after a few drinks, is more than happy to get up to the microphone and sing something. And then they say to me, Roddy, come on, you're a singer, come and sing something. Of course, I know none of the repertoire because I think, you know, what do you want, a Brahms song, a Schubert song or something? And there's very few of those in a karaoke machine. Um, I don't know any of the lyrics to the things that, that come up, or even it's got a bouncing ball, don't know the tunes. And there is an expectation, because it's been announced that I'm a singer, that I'm going to be good at it. And all I'm going to do is disappoint. So you see myself building myself up to this big crescendo of singing you something, uh, much to your disappointment. No, no, no. That's all right. It's always good to uh, to manage expectations. Um, but look, I mean, you know, in your in in your line of work, what one imagines you must rub shoulders with some pretty famous or wealthy or, or interesting. People, are there any anecdotes or, or encounters that, that stick in the mind that were the most meaningful or the most crazy or, or hilarious that you could share with us? Um, uh, wish I could get hilarious in there. Um, uh, the great thing about the music industry is that when you m meet fellow musicians um, to, to, do a, to do a job together, um, uh, they become colleagues very swiftly. So, for example, I've, I've got two that pop into my mind that are worth anecdoting about. And one is the lovely Emma Kirkby, who was an absolute, is an absolute singing sensation. She kind of became the sound of early music soprano singing um, in the 1980s and 90s. As I was a teenager at Habs, actually, I was listening to a lot of Emma Kirkby singing on the radio as she was taking the classical music world by storm. She sang with very little vibrato as opposed to operatic sopranos who sing with a, a can sing with a great deal of vibrato. Um, I remember once doing a concert with her at the Wigmore Hall in London, standing next to her. And as I'm processing the idea that, you know, here's me in my 30s or 40s now, remembering my teenage self listening to Emma Kirkby on the radio, and here she is singing next to me. Now, at the end of the first half, towards the end of the first half, the ushers at the back end of the hall opened the doors so that people could get out as the, as the interval was about to start. Um, they opened the doors early. We were still standing there singing. And there was a big poster of Emma Kirkby, because she'd probably got a new CD out, at the back of the hall just in the foyer. So they opened the doors, and I could see down the back 
this massive poster of the woman's face who's standing singing right next to me. And that was just weird. That was, that was a moment when I, when I realized I was singing next to a rock legend. But there, there's one, there's, there's the lovely Emma Kirkby, but the other one is that uh, pops into my mind is Jonas Kaufmann, who's German, German tenor. He sang at the last night of the proms in, it must've been, uh, it must've been 2015. And this comes to mind because for whatever reason, for better or for worse, I happened to sing the last night of the proms the previous year. So I think, I think I was 2000, yes, I was 2014. I sang the last night of the proms and my wife, bought for me as to show her support she bought me a pair of union jack boxer shorts so it'd give me that little lucky pair of boxers to wear um on stage for the last night and off it went and it was great now when it came to Jonas Kaufmann's year a year later and he is very much a rock legend in the classical music uh tenor singing you know he's he's got fans who follow him everywhere and you know and what have you and recording contracts and stuff um he was doing it uh, up the last night. I happened to be singing in the penultimate night of the proms that year. So I happened to be using the dressing room that he was going to be using the very next day. So as a parting gift, I thought I would wrap up for him a pair of Union Jack boxer shorts and just left him a short note saying, um, you know, this is a little tradition that you ones. might. These were, these were fresh ones. These were, yes, I, that's very important. That's quite right. These were fresh, clean bought that day uh, uh, previously unused as far as we know boxer shorts um and i and i left them uh for him and wrote a little note and signed it to roddy williams i don't suppose he has the first idea uh, uh, who roddy williams is and that's fair enough um but i left it for him now it happened that the filmmaker john bridcut was had been accompanying Jonas kaufman for the however many months making a film about him and so when Jonas Kaufman arrived for the last night, and he arrived instantly, he arrived after it had started so that he wouldn't be besieged by fans. That's how famous he is. He knows to arrive 10 minutes after the show started and he's ushered in by security. And he made it all the way down with the camera on his shoulder, all the way down to his dressing room, went to his dressing room and discovered this present. And he unwrapped it and found a pair of boxer shorts. And, you know, women are obviously throwing knickers at him the entire time. And he was actually, you can see it on screen, quite angry that somehow some crazy fan had managed to get into his dressing room and leave him a pair of boxer shorts. <laughs> uh, fortunately, John Bridcut, the filmmaker, uh, uh, he knows me. So off camera, he was probably able to explain, no, don't worry, Roddy is not um, a stalker. Um, you don't need to put a restraining order on him. It's going to be okay. But during his performance that evening, Jonas Kaufmann did get underwear thrown at him from his fans in the crowd. And he was able to throw my pair of, uh, my gift pair of boxer shorts back out into the crowd. So I was actually able to give him something to throw, which I, I feel is good stuff. Yeah. I, I, I was kind of hoping that somewhere this, this world famous singer was, you know, German singer was performing on stage wearing Union Jack uh, boxer shorts. But yeah. I guess, uh, I, I haven't. Guess it wasn't to be. Yeah, well, I've not actually met him yet. So I'll, if, if and when I do, I'll be able to ask him whether he actually wore the shorts before he threw them. I, I feel probably not, unfortunately. Right. Well, maybe, uh, maybe we'll, he'll, he'll see this on social media or something. And yeah. <laughs> Let us know. Bring a smile. <laughs> bring it to his face. 
But uh, Roddy, we've been talking a lot about your, um, you know, your your performances, and you mentioned last night the proms and your recordings and your awards. Uh, one imagines that it's obviously, you know, not a straight line to get to where you are. Um, and you must have had some knockbacks over the years. Just, just how? Tell us about some of the challenges that you encountered along the way. That's that's a very interesting question. I think um, we all of us get used to rejection letters from auditions, and I've done my fair share of auditions that haven't got anywhere. And that, but um, you mentioned actually, you mentioned uh, my career path as a straight line, and it, it, it's been a. a such a wonderfully normal slow burn to get where I am wherever that is that um, actually I didn't really notice the rejections I didn't I didn't worry about them the truth is I, I, my, my career has been made up of so many bits and bobs of bits of opera bits of recital singing concert singing recordings a bit of teaching uh, and composition and arranging. I do so many things that when a letter comes through the door that says, Mr. Williams, thank you for coming to the audition. Unfortunately, we're unable to, blah, 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 blah. Um, at no point that I can remember, I'm, and I'm trying to be truthful here, so I'm going back in my mind and seeing if I can picture. At no point do I remember being completely crestfallen that I hadn't been booked because I had other things to be getting on with. And over the last... Um, would it be 25 to 30 years that I've been a professional singer once I stopped being a classroom music teacher. Over, over that time, um, I don't think I've been um, significantly out of work until the, the months of COVID. There's always been something, a little church job here, some church services or... Uh, you know, peripatetic teaching when I was younger, and there's always been something to do. Um, so uh, the the challenge, it, it, I did, I did, it never felt like a challenge to me. But the the challenge really is just to be positive and to keep going. And I've I've always been a positive person. I don't know why, but it's been easy to look forward to things, um, and. I don't remember those long, dark tea times of the soul where I was, you know, trying to struggle with whether I should be doing this or not, and should I just cash it all in and um, and wait tables. My children, for example, each one of them has worked um, on tables. They've done bar work, um, antisocial hours, um, what I would describe as real work. If you excuse me, sorry for anybody who's in the singing profession listening to this. But, you know, hard, grafting, difficult work where you get up in the morning and think, oh, here we go, another shift. I've, I don't think I've ever done that. There's always been something musical for me to do. And the music has been inspiring and it gets me out of bed and, and I enjoy it. Gosh, this is beginning to sound really quite smug, um, Elliot. So I'm really, I apologize for that. Um, but it's, it's, it's more that, um, you know, those people sometimes say, you know, they wouldn't know hard work if it dropped on them. Um, I sometimes think that about myself. But um, I, I'm sure I work hard at what I do in other ways that I could wax lyrical about. But specifically the challenges that you, you mentioned. When I went into um, 
the classical world and particularly into the operatic world, that, that part of the classical singing world, operatic world, people did say to me, oh, watch out for opera world. It's a cutthroat world. You know, everybody's knifing each other in the back. You know, it's horrible and lots of stuff. Watch out. And I have never found it to be that. I've, I've been surrounded wherever I've sung by wondrous, um, generous, wonderful colleagues. Um, I just haven't, that's not been my experience. And clearly, you're obviously doing this professionally now, but I'm just wondering, did, was it at Habs that you, you first kind of got the singing bug? Uh, what, what maybe you can, was there a moment that you suddenly write, this is, this is for me? Well, I'm glad you, you, you remind me to talk particularly about Habs because obviously that was hugely significant. My, when I was younger, before Habernashes, I was uh, at a prep school in Oxford that was specifically attached to Christchurch Cathedral's um, College, Christchurch Cathedral's College, uh, Christchurch Cathedral, I should say. And my older brother was head chorister there. And I followed in his footsteps and went to the same school. I didn't sing in the cathedral choir like he did. I was in one of the college choirs, which kind of felt um, second rung at that time. So as a seven and eight year old, I had it in mind. My brother was the singer. And I was, uh, thanks for coming. Um, you stand at the back there and, and whatever. So there was a great deal of music around. Music was normal. Singing was entirely normal and great deal of fun. And But I didn't think much of it. I, I wasn't aware that we were being treated as as professional musicians, you know, to, to do um, three services a week, process the music, get it done, do the job. I wasn't aware that was what was going on, but that was actually happening. When I came to Habs at 11, rather than 13, um, there, were, there was lots of music going on. I played cello in the, in the school orchestras. I sang in the choirs. And um, towards the end of my time, my sixth form, and I was doing music at A-level uh, with a large number. I was, I was part of a set of about 10 people doing music A-level, um, whereas the following year, there were only two people. So it was, a, it was an unusual year. And in and amongst them, we put on our own concerts. I, we had a string quartet that I was part of, and I formed a choir from uh, um, boys from the school and also some of the girls from the girls' school, uh, and I conducted that with no pretensions of being a conductor, with no pretensions of being a singer. It's just another way of making music that I thought would be fun. Um, others looking at me doing that sort of thing from the outside might have thought, ah, there's a musician, he's going to go on to have a career in music. I did not see this because <laughs> I'm afraid I wasn't that... Um, bright in that area. But, but if you didn't see it, was it something? That, was it something? Even if you didn't see it, that perhaps was encouraged that the teacher said, "Oh, you're good enough to kind of do this professionally," or was this not even, uh, you know, part of the conversation when it came to going to university after school and mm. then having a career and whatnot? I don't remember it being part of the conversation at all, and and that's that's not because the music staff um were you know dereliction of duty on their part not a bit of it um as certainly people around me were members of the national youth orchestra and i didn't get i didn't i failed that audition so there's one i did as a setback but i knew i would fail it i knew i wasn't as good as my colleagues wonderful string players um careers in music at that time in my generation careers advice was based around one of those amazing computer programs you did where you filled out a, a, a 10 page questionnaire with your likes and dislikes sent it off and it was analyzed by a computer and a week or so later <laughs> the results came back and i think i'd put down on the form somewhere that i wasn't afraid of children 
and I put down somewhere else in the form that I enjoyed music. So after a week, the computer came back and said, you could be a music teacher. And I, being the slightly unimaginative boy that I was, thought, okay, it's told me I'm going to be a music teacher. That's what I'm going to be. And that's that's what I was programmed to do, programmed, programmed myself to do. When I went to university, admittedly as a choral scholar, and I and I came across that almost by accident, I went to university as a choral scholar, and some of my choral scholar colleagues had the intention of going into the business and being a, a, a professional musician. I just didn't realize that existed as an option. So when it came to my finals in music, uh, um, there was a performance course. You know, you could take a performance module. It didn't occur to me to sing. It really did not occur to me to sing as part of my finals. I took the composition paper itself, which I realized in retrospect was a bit of a mistake. Um, but I had no pretensions as a singer, at least for another five six, seven years, um, and I was slightly late to it. But, you know, I found my way eventually. <laughs> Better late than never. Um, yeah. uh, but, I mean, so you mentioned some of the singing and uh, the quartets and, and the other musical escapades um, that you went on at Habs. What, what else did you get up to there? Were you involved in a lot of other things? Were you a, a good student? Were you a mischievous student? Uh, tell us a bit more about your time. Um uh, I was a I was a model student in that I I kept my nose clean and I, I think towards the end of my time there, say the last three years from my O levels onwards, when I began to realise that that music was going to be my thing, I probably hid a lot in the music department, um, which which it, you know that separate building with its huge doors um, that you have to sort of kind of wrestle against to open and close. Um, I could lose myself in there. Now, you mentioned about other things. It suddenly makes you think, God, did I do anything else? I, my subjects at A-level were um, uh, history, English, and music. And I have very fond memories of all those classes. Um, I wouldn't have said I was much of an English student in particular, although I love um, my poetry now, the poetry that I sing. So I, I'm, I'm aware that I use those skills daily. I wouldn't say I was a particularly talented historian, but I'm aware that I use those skills daily um, in researching the music that I sing and placing it in context and discovering about it. So I'm, I'm aware that I do use those talents, uh, those, um, th that education. Um, but I am now stuck to, to offer you Anything that I did as a teenager at Haberdashers that was not in some way connected to the music department. I, I shrugged off sport at an, at an early age. I joined the CCF for maybe one or two years until it became um, uh, so difficult uh, for me to keep up that I realized that the, the option of doing some sort of social community service meant that I could play in my string quartet and take the, 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 I was the cellist in a string quartet and we would go around and play to um, local um, uh, uh, care homes and, and, you know, contribute something in, in that way without my having to put on a uniform and be um, uh, shot at and, and run after by uh, some of the bigger boys. <laughs> Help! Um, and uh, so I became a one trick pony 
by by much. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure, lots of people at school, by, by the time they get to the end, begin to realise that, that, that there's one particular thing that is calling them. Others may have much more of a of a of a spread of skills and interests, but but music really took over for for me, and um, uh, I'm st- I'm still in touch with the surviving member of start the music staff um, FJR uh, um, FJR we called him Frank John Rose as, as his name, and he he um, comes to oh, a lot of concerts. Sorry. Yes, yes. Well, we're in wonderful email contact, and he he comes to concerts and and gives me. Um, very carefully thought out, lengthy reviews by email afterwards, for which I'm I'm very grateful. It's wonderful to be correspondence with him. I saw Peter Clulow n- not so long ago because he was doing some research on a CD that I was recording, and Alan Taylor I was in contact with from time to time, and uh, it was a very sad loss when he died. Both he and and Peter died in the last few years, and um, I was at Alan's um, uh, funeral event. And it was wonderful to see him and his family there. Um, uh, and and I realise also that Alan Taylor uh, took me and a whole raft of trebles, trebles, I should say, not trebles, trebles, to um, the Royal Festival Hall one year to sing at the big um, Matthew Passion um, performance, Bach, Matthew Passion, the, the, the Bach choir do. Um, I managed to cry off sick because I had a tiny bit of a cough. And I think there was something, I think the goodies had their Easter show or something, or they had a show on the television. I managed to cry off so I could watch television at home, little realising that fast forward, you know, a decade or two, and I would be singing uh, the solos at the same event of a, you know, of a Good Friday or an Easter Sunday um, in years to come. If someone had tapped me on the shoulder, how was, how was anybody to know? It said, Roddy, pay attention because this piece of music is going to become very important for you. So just, just pay attention. You know, who, who, can, who can say? Who can see into the future in that sort of way? But um, at least I could say I'd sung at the Festival Hall before, before then. Indeed, I should say, I think Mr. Rose, uh, if I recall correctly, he's the only teacher that ever gave me a, a detention, I think. Uh, and that was for <laughs> clapping. We were listening to some music and there was like some clapping in it. And I kind of like decided to clap out of, deliberately out of sync with everybody else. And uh, I think that was more the final straw of, 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 of numerous infractions that had, uh, <laughs> had gone unpunished. Um, uh, well, yeah, I've got a few more just rapid fire questions to sure. uh, so if Mr. Rose is watching. It's okay. I, I'm not bitter. Uh, just a few um, kind of rapid fire questions. Sure. Um, so, so what year did you, what year did you leave the school? 1983. Yeah, okay. that wasn't as rapid fire as you were hoping, was it? <laughs> so, so, did I? Sorry. Did you enjoy your time there? Yes, I did. I did. It was a, it was a, a great time there, mostly because of the people I met, uh, many of whom I'm I'm still in contact with. So, yeah, yeah, I did have a good time there. And who was head of the school when you were at Habs? Uh, Bruce McGowan. Um, he was the headmaster. Is that what you mean? Yes. Because um, Bruce and uh, your sorry, well, I was only going to say that Bruce and Pat McGowan. Bruce retired to Woodstock outside of Oxford, uh, and and he had already become quite good friends with my parents. And so Bruce and Pat McGowan were great supporters of me in my early days as a singer. 
um, and came along to a lot of concerts. So it was, I was uh, really indebted to them for their support. It's lovely to get to know them, myself, to get to know my headmaster as a friend. It was really rather beautiful. Lovely. And who were your favourite teachers and what did they teach? Well, uh, I, uh, the, the music department, of course, were huge, a huge part of my life. Um, I've already mentioned um, uh, uh, Mr. Rose. I have to call him Mr. Rose or FJR. I can't call him by his first names. Um, so, uh, uh, and Alan Taylor and Peter Clulo were, were obviously a huge part of my life. I had a, a great deal of time for my A-level history teachers, uh, Mr. John Rotherington. Uh, J.C. Lodington, unfortunately known in our household as J. Cloth because of his initials and that. I hope he won't mind that. And and uh, Mr. Roberts, um, again, I have to call him by his Mr. Roberts because that's how I spoke of him. Um, and they, I, I think it's not an exaggeration that they got me through my A levels. Their their approach to teaching infected my other two subjects and gave me the skills to get very good grades because of the techniques, the, the way of um, studying for A-levels, because of what Mr. Robertson and, and Mr. Lodrington taught me, uh, I was able to uh, apply that to my other subjects. I did uh, better in my A-levels than I think anybody, certainly than I expected. And I remember meeting my English teacher, Barry Edwards, who incidentally ran the Phoenix Singers, the, the um, Close Harmony group. I remember meeting Barry Edwards in the corridor after my edibles and uh, he saw me and said, oh, Roddy, he said, um, well done with your result. He said, his eyebrows up here somewhere, unable to hide his surprise that I'd done so well. And I, and I felt for him because I felt exactly the same way. But um, yeah, so those are my favourite teachers. And did you interact much with uh, students at the, at the other school, at the girls' school? Y yes, uh, particularly uh, when it came to music. Because, of course, although there was a, a, a policy of um, social distancing, as, it, as it's become known then, um, and, I, of course, I, got, I had a brother at school, Philip, my younger brother. Uh, af long after I was there, he, he became head boy of the school, natural fact. So he did particularly well. Um, because I had brothers, of course, we had no, no sisters. Um, girls were a different breed, a different uh, species. Um, it was a good thing that on the bus to and from school we were able to interact with them even just sort of see how they they operate but when it came to the school orchestra and the and the uh, the school choirs the various choirs but particularly the school orchestra we did actually um sit alongside them to make music and i won't ever forget a moment when i was probably about 13 or 14 something like that and spotty and shy and tongue-tied with women and just with, 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 with girls, you know, I just didn't know how to look them in the eye. I remember that whoever's, a girl called Kate who was playing cello next to me on the sort of fifth desk of cellos. And um, I remember at one point her cello, one of the strings um, slipped out of tune and she hadn't noticed she was playing away. And in the next break, I turned to her and said, summed up all my kind and said, uh, uh, excuse me, I think you've got some problem with your G string. And then heard what I just said and just felt, you know, yeah, great days. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, <laughs> and ha have you kept in touch with, uh, with your old schoolmates? I have, yes. Particularly uh, uh, the, the music set. Um, uh, one or two of them I see a great deal. One or two of them I see professionally there, you know, so I'm able to keep up with them without even needing to try. Um, a lot of them I keep in touch with by email, um, just so that we all know 
kind of where we are. Um, uh, so that extraordinary A-level set that we had, um, yes, I'm in touch with them. Uh, I'm godfather to, uh, to, to one of them's um, daughters, and he is godfather to my son. So we've got a good connection cemented that way as well. So, yeah, I am in touch with them. And uh, just like, do you have a, is there a recent accomplishment you can uh, mention? Uh, lockdowns and uh, cancelled jobs notwithstanding? <laughs> yeah, there's an accomplishment that, that you might care to hear about, which will make my wife blush because she blushes every time I mention it. Um, I was involved before lockdown with a group called Concertinis, a branch of Music in the Round in Sheffield. Concertinis exists to give musical, live musical content to children aged naught to two years old so that their parents, guardians, whoever can come to live events and, and whatever mayhem ensues, we're all in the same boat, we're all happy. And, you know, I, I can re perform a recital across a nappy change right in front of me and no one worries about it and obviously in lockdown they were starved of content so they said could I provide something for them on YouTube so I was here with my family and I produced a 40 minute concert um, actually I mean it's, it's quite a lengthy video 40 minute concert of myself singing with my family um, none of whom is a professional musician. They, uh, in fact, several of them uh, define the word amateur. And, and uh, so we all played various different things and sang stuff. And it's all like play school for, for young viewers. Um, and I set this off and thought nothing more of it. This YouTube video, Concertinis, the Williams family doing their best von Trapp impression, is still up on the net and available for anybody to view. Um, it includes my wife accompanying me on the piano, which is something we'd never done before and did not rehearse. Um, so she is a bit worried because it often, if you search my name in popular search engines, often this Constantini's YouTube video is the one that comes up first. Um, and it's just it was just us as a family having fun in that glorious summer weather of 2020. Um, and that I would like to include as my lockdown achievement. Well, it's good that you you were able to show uh, people, you know, that, that you've expanded your repertoire uh, during during lockdowns, and uh, perhaps that'll lead to even more uh, even more demand for your services uh, when yeah. things go back to normal. Exactly, but, um, particularly for the under twos. Yeah, indeed, indeed, new fans get them early. Uh, look, Roddy Williams, uh, we're, we're kind of out of time. Uh, been a really fascinating conversations. So, uh, uh, Roderick Williams, baritone singer, composer, and MBE, among many other things. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak to, uh, to speak to me and us on the We Are Habs podcast. Thank you. And if uh, anyone watching uh, would like to know more about our guests uh, or the school, do please visit www.habsboys.org.uk uh, or uh, gotkin.com. And you can follow us uh, on your favourite social media at Habs or at Elliot Gotkin or at eGotkin. Uh, and uh, we will be back again next time with another celebrated old haberdasher. We do hope you'll be able to join us again then. Take care.